Welcome to episode 111 of Destination Linux. This is a podcast made up of four of the greatest minds ever to discuss their passion for Linux. My name is Noah, and joining me today are my three podcasting friends. Michael, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How about you? Pretty good. Ryan? Doing awesome. Thank you. How about Ryan? How about Zeb? Yeah, I'm better than I was two hours ago, but I'll explain that in a minute. All right. So, Michael, what have you been up to this week? I have been doing a lot of stuff. I had to actually rebuild. I, I distro hopped for the first time in three years or so. Welcome to Arch. Oh, okay, actually, it's Kubuntu still. Yeah. Uh, but it's a newer version. Uh, although I was on Neon for this machine, and this now it's on Kubuntu. And the reason is because I got a new graphics card that happens to be the Vega 64 from AMD, and it is awesome. Team Red. Yeah, I, I, I'm loving it right now. It's it allowed me to do streaming for game streaming for the first time ever. So that's awesome. And it also meant I have to rebuild my system because the graphics drivers for the hardware was not available in the distro I was using because I've been using the same one for three years and it's not a rolling. So it required me to distro hop. So finally I was forced to do it. So when I, I my my prediction for the beginning of the, of the year where I said I was going to be distro hopping. It, it happened, but I had can, to force myself. Uh, can I stop you for a moment, Michael? Uh, if you have, you I just want to be clear. You went from Neon, which mm-hmm. is an Ubuntu base with the KDE desktop, mm-hmm. to Kubuntu, which is a, yes, an Ubuntu base with the mm-hmm. KDE desktop, and that's your idea of distro hopping? I mean, it was a small hop, but it was a hop, okay? <laughs> yeah, he's it's making like, yeah, you, you remember, you've, you've ever been downhill skiing, Michael? Yes. And they have the and they have the bunny hill. Yeah, it's basically that. And then uh, on the bottom of the bunny hill, sometimes a little snow mounds up where the skiers stop. Sure, <laughs> and sure. And then before that, like where the front of the ski is, sometimes a little snow comes over the front of the ski. Oh, that's how you hop. I, I think I think actually it was more like a double black diamond. So uh, it was. Wow. Really, really really called no on that. Yeah, yeah you took oh. a lot of risks there, Michael. I mean, how are those risks paying off? Well, they're they're doing pretty well actually. I um. I'm having I, I, the same. The software that I was using is is still available. That's that's great. Uh, the drivers are working actually because it's a new gra- dra- graphics driver, or graphics card, and I needed to get updated drivers, and they're working fine. So that's just you know PPAs and impro- improve some instant packages, and it's all good. So well, we hope huge, you can muddle through to I, learn I'm, all the differences. I'm trying. I'm trying. It's it's going to take a while, but uh, luckily. The Kubuntu installation for the default has really nice uh, pre pre set up defaults where they fixed a bunch of weird plasma stuff. So that that made it a lot easier. Yeah, nice. If you use a real interface like Xmonad, like a real man, you wouldn't have these problems. But exactly. anyway, uh, I wouldn't Ryan. have an interface at that point. I would just have like this, <laughs> this Windows. That's it. Ryan, what have you been up to this week? So this was our first Linux and Coffee meetup on Saturday. And I expected, you know, because we advertise it on the show a little bit and we mentioned it in some of the groups. So I expected it to be maybe me and Bo and one other person. We had a nice showing. We had about five people show up. Some of them drove hours to get there, which was shocking to me um, that they would they would want to come hang out and spend hours to do so and talk Linux. But it ended up Especially paying with off. You. Well, exactly. Uh, they probably were there for Bo. But uh, it ended up paying off tremendously because we had a fantastic time. We just sat there. We it's it's whiskey barrel aged coffee in this place. You can get regular coffee too, but that's one of their specialties, which was mm-hmm. kind of cool. And we hung out in the place. We got a bunch of seats. There's pictures in the Destination Linux Telegram uh, area, and we built well. We were going to build a Raspberry Pi setup with a seven inch LCD touchscreen, except the kit that I brought had everything but the LCD in it. 
So, oops. But thankfully, other people brought their raspberry pies, et cetera. We had the kids off to the side and they went and built their first, you know, casing and, and, and casing the raspberry pie and putting the SD card in their five-year-old. So it was kind of a cool setup and they were really proud of that. And we just talked Linux for a couple hours and had an absolute blast. And everyone was asking, we're going to do this again, right? So that's always a good sign. And uh, actually, one of them went up to the establishment because I didn't think this far ahead and asked, hey, can, you know, would you guys mind us being here on a regular basis once a month. And they said, we would love to have you. We'll even give you a dedicated room for it. So I think things are kicking up really nice for the Linux stuff. And I already ordered the LCD. So next month, barring anything doesn't go wrong, we will be putting together that kit there as just kind of an activity for fun to do. And also just talk Linux. That's awesome, dude. I love that. You're you're inspiring me to do some things that I'll have to get into a a little bit later, maybe in the show. Zeb, what's new with you? Um, Well, I've had a bit of a, a bit of a shocking week to be honest with you. Um, But the, the, the main answer is when you get a new piece of kit, read the flaming manual. No, because you don't, you don't, if you don't do that, what happens is um, you get this little wonderful little UB key, which is really, really good and sexy and, supposed to do all things good for you stick it in your machine go into google set up two-factor authentication and then get locked out for four days because they don't recognize it it's me logging in because i'm using some weird password but that was the whole point of turning on 2fa so i don't use it for that anymore i'm just using it as an authenticator with an app on the phone and for that it's great um and then to top it all today my mouse decided that it was going to make me think that all of my hard disks had gone wrong. So having hosed every single one and took every single thing out and tried to install Peppermint and it was still going wrong, I replaced the mouse and, oh, look, my machine's working perfectly. So I'm now down to one hard disk with Peppermint on it at the moment. So so you extreme distro hopped, even though you didn't need to. Yeah, and you're still uh, like one disk ahead of where Michael is. So there's that. <laughs> I have two now. Thank you. Shocking. Whole 10 megs between the both of them. No, it's because I distro hopped. All of my stuff that I had stored is now on a separate drive, and now it's just completely clean because there's like maybe four applications installed because I just installed what I needed to do the show on. So it's... I it's, feel like that's, that's a round of applause You're right growing there. up, Mike. It's only, t- it's only temporary. Don't get ahead of yourselves. All um, these risks you're taking <laughs> distro hopping and now this, it's right. like a whole new Michael. Well, actually, but what uh, Zeb said about the, the doing the, when you get a new piece of kit, to don't, you know, read the manuals and everything. I didn't do that i just called ryan and he told me what to do exactly (laughs) there you go hey so last week we asked the audience to guess where is noah here are some of the great responses that you guys came up with noah was shopping at ikea (laughs) noah was tracking down carmen san diego or waldo noah is off hunting for a radeon 7 with and a beard (laughs) noah is at the olympic tryouts for curling that's all my which, favorite answer all yeah. of which i might add wrong i was trap shooting in a competition uh last week in mesa arizona where and i cannot make this up i drove i flew 2300 miles from grand forks north dakota where it's nine below zero in a snowstorm so that i could go shoot trap in mesa arizona and it snowed there was a blizzard <laughs> now it gets better because i go up to the lady at the trap shoot desk and i said how how often does this happen? And she goes, 
oh, pretty often. I'm like, oh, really? And I start to feel better. I'm like, oh, well, this is just the weather in Mesa, Arizona. This happens, you know, every couple of days. I said, oh, really? When was the last time it happened? Oh, no more than four or five years ago. <laughs> five years you get a blizzard every five years and one of the three days i'm here that's the day i've never i've shot trap never shot trap in a, in a snowstorm i live in north dakota i have to come to mesa arizona to shoot trap in the snow <laughs> the entire second of the day of the shoot got canceled so i just sat in the hot tub and played with linux but it sounds like a good compromise was, though yeah it was fun nonetheless yeah, absolutely Hey, this episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Now, DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly plat <laughs> cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with their intuitive API, multiple storage options, and integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. I actually, in Arizona, not making this up, actually deployed a server for a client while sitting in a hot tub. It was an absolute blast, and that's, that's because... Awesome. Of the ease of use of DigitalOcean. They said we wanted this service. I said, hey, we can rent a server for five bucks. They said, absolutely, boss. I'd love to pay five bucks to rent a world-class server. And so we got, uh, we used their world-class customer support, spent that five bucks and got them, uh, got them spun up and working less than seven cents, point seven cents per hour. That's darn near free, as Ryan would say. DigitalOcean has over 2,000 cloud agnostic tutorials to help you stay up to date with the latest open source software language and frameworks. You can get started on DigitalOcean for two free months with a $100 credit by going to do.co slash DL. That's do.co slash DL. You can use that $100 credit to try out a bunch of their small droplets, or you can scale up to a beefy droplet, which I needed to use to repair my, my son's Minecraft world that he <laughs> tried to create a command block and got the thing to 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 tax the server so much that our server couldn't handle it, but I could rent a beefy digital ocean droplet for like $780 a month and use it for 10 minutes with that free coupon code and was able to fix his Minecraft world, which is absolutely <laughs> great. Yeah. They, they, they'll let you run test that 16 gigabytes, 6V CPU droplet that has six terabytes of total transfer. And again, you can get started in DigitalOcean with that $100 credit by going to DO. Dot co slash dl and a huge thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this week of Destination Linux. So before we get into the email, I want to give a special thanks to everyone who's offering their support on the GoFundMe page for bringing Zeb to America. Zeb, you're going to be shocked at this. They have now raised thirteen hundred and six dollars wow. of the two thousand dollars. So we are nearly Amazing. there. That's awesome. And also on the Linux Fest, Southeast Linux Fest page is currently down. And as I understand it, they're going to be, that means we're going to get new dates for this 2019 session here anytime now. So as soon as that happens, we'll let folks know because I know a lot of people are interested in attending just to see Zeb. I think Zeb's going to be the <laughs> highlight of all itself. But to like put him like in a cage and walk him around like here, don't, don't feed him. Don't this is a real-life Brit, <laughs> a real-life Brit we have here itself. Um, but thank you all very much for your donations and helping. Obviously, it's very costly to um, be able to fly Zeb over there. And thanks to you and your generosity, we're going to be able to make that happen. And we're going to be doing live streams and doing shows there, the Ask Noah show. We're going to do a Destination Linux show there. It's going to be an absolute blast. A bunch of people sitting around talking about Linux and panels to learn stuff. What more could you possibly want? But thank you all so much for your support there. Truly appreciated. Thank you. If self isn't enough for you or you can't wait that long to, get, to come say hello to the Destination Linux crew, then come join us at scale. Now, it's not going to be the entire Destination Linux team. In fact, 
it'll just be me. But we're going to head out for some burgers and talk about some Linux. So come uh, say hi to me and we'll have some Destination Linux swag available as well as some Ask Noah stuff and some good company, some beer, some burgers. We're meeting at Slater's 5050. That's 61 North Raymond Avenue in Pasadena, California. It's going to be at 6 p.m. on the Friday of uh, of scale. So the 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 very the very first day, I believe it is, uh, of the of the scale weekend. That's going to be March 8th. Yes. Okay. Friday. Yeah. March 8th. So come uh, come hang out with us, and uh, and we'll 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 chat about some Linux. And I don't know. We you never know. We might depending on what people's schedule is is freed up for we might be able to get a, a remote connection to michael or ryan or zeb or all three of them because it is a friday who knows what will happen and i would imagine that that weekend we'll probably be recording destination linux live from scale we haven't actually worked out the details of that yet but uh i'll be at scale and so if if and when we record destination linux episode that weekend uh, you can stop by and and say hi to us as we're doing the show as well that sounds awesome. If if you'd like to do if you'd like to if you'd like to participate in that if you want more information, um, there is a proprietary garbage alternative uh, that we don't use because we actually care about open source. So we use gettogether.community. That's an open source uh, product that was recommended actually by Michael right here on Destination Linux, and so we jumped on it, set it up. So gettogether.community. We'll have a link for you in the show notes for the Destination Linux Scale Meetup. That's Friday, March 8th at Slater's 5050 at 6 p.m. local time. Well, I'd love to be able to join, join you there, but unfortunately, or fortunately for me, March the 8th is going to be my 39th wedding anniversary, so me and the missus will be out enjoying a meal. Nice. Congratulations, nice. Zeb. Thank you. Okay, so moving on to the email. We have greetings from a fellow UK. Um, greetings from sunny Scotland. Thanks for continuing to make a great show every week. Really looking forward to it, although lately leaves me a tad jealous of Zeb getting a free ride to Southeast <laughs> Linux Fest. Just jesting. Looking forward to watch him fly the flag for us Marmite munchers over here. <laughs> so I'm emailing with a quick comment concerning your discussion about Tutanota and ProtonMail. Um, it was pointed out that if you use Tutanona to send encrypted mail to someone who is not using the service, your email is unencrypted. And whilst that's true, in as far as the recipient would not receive an encrypted email directly, you are nevertheless able to send encrypted mail to anyone with an email address. The recipient would get an email with a link which takes them to their own automatically generated temporary Tutanota, God, that's a mouthful, inbox, where they'd then be able to enter the password. The email is truly end-to-end -end encrypted between you and the Tutanota client and the temporary recipient inbox. ProtonMail also, also offers a similar feature. And I guess that's one of the things that maybe stops people using encrypted email, is worrying about how the person at the other end is going to get that reply. So that actually sounds like it's, it's right. quite, a, quite a good idea. Um, it was also mentioned that Tutanola or Tutanota and ProtonMail may be compatible. That is to say that you could send encrypted email between the two. While you'd be able to do this through the method above for sending encrypted email to recipients who don't use a service, you would not be able to send encrypted mail from Tutanota to ProtonMail or vice versa and expect the recipient to be able to read the email directly. Um, neither ProtonMail or Tutanota use GPG PGP as default encryption for their service. However, 
ProtonMail does offer an additional option to encrypt with PGP for external users. The recipient would then need to decrypt with PGP in the usual... Oh, pick up the phone, it's quicker. Um, <laughs> apologies if you know the, all, all the above already, but it seemed a bit, a bit unclear in your broadcast, and it's been made even worse by Zed reading out the email the way he did. <laughs> all the best, keep up the great work. Very much appreciated, except Zeb, the lucky chap. Cheers, Dan. So I thought this was a really interesting email because we were talking about some of the advantages. You know, I'm a huge fan of Proton Mail. People really need to get away from the Google services, mm-hmm. in my opinion. And one of the great alternatives out there that I tell people is check out Proton Mail. Tutanota, or however you pronounce it, um, is also a great alternative, it looks like, as well. And we did have discussion on whether these two clients could talk to each other or whether there's a point to encrypted mail because frankly, a lot of our friends or some of our friends may not be as geeky as we are. So we send them some encrypted mail and say, Hey, I'm going to send you a password to open it. They'll be like, yeah, no, uh, I don't know what this is. Um, <laughs> well, and how are you going to send that password? Through an unencrypted mail, right? Or that, through an unencrypted uh, phone call. Exactly. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> or you could use an encrypted service, I guess, out there like uh, signal or something else to do it. But Again, you're talking about a huge, we talk about convenience in in the technology. You have to have enough convenience for the privacy and security for people to actually do it. And probably a lot of people aren't going to go through all those methods. Now, if me and Noah are both on ProtonMail, we could send each other encrypted email. No big deal. (laughs) We'd be using Um, encrypted Telegram chat, bro. There you go. Encrypted Telegram, something like that. But it is interesting to see, um, to get some additional information on these two services. And it looks like based on what he's saying, he's used both and he likes them both. They're great, both great options out there for people to check out if you're looking to get away from the more, you know, standard uh, services like uh, Google Mail or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting that this email came up because after... Um, the YubiKey broke my Google Mail. I had to get another mail client pretty quick. So I was so proud I now, of you, Zeb. I now have a Proton Mail, yeah. so we've. Uh, I, I can now slowly disintegrate my or disintegrate, um, disinvest myself from some of the uh, headaches that go with trying to convince these massive organisations that you are what who you are. Now, I've got a quick poll question for each of you here. Yeah, as part of the security question, Noah. When did you start up with Gmail? Uh, actually, I can tell you the exact date. It was the day that I got my Google Glass. Um, yeah, it was September 14th of 2016. I got my Google Glass and I, uh, I decided that I, I had to use the, or no, sorry, 2013, uh, because I had to use a Google account to be able to activate the, uh, the Glass and I didn't have a Google account prior to that. Wow. Michael, can you remember? I have no idea what the actual day was. I can tell you the rough year, uh, yeah. 2005 Ryan? or four, something like that. Yeah, I, I, I can't remember. It's been so long, but I do remember that when they were spreading the service, you had to have somebody, if somebody got in, like Michael was able to get into the testing, he could send five invites to people that yep. he knew. Yeah. I got one of those invites. So it was very early on from somebody, not from Michael, but, I know back then. Right. Uh, but I got an invite and it was very early on that I adopted it. And back then, before we knew everything that was going on, I thought this is the greatest thing ever. Yep. 
Yep. Well, that's that's one of the security questions that they ask you. And if you can't answer that, the whole process has to stop. And then they have to go and make other checks when you've told them information about what was the last email you sent? What was the last purchase you made? Have you made any purchases? And it's like, I just want my email back. There's, there's the password you asked me for. There's my backup email account. But no, it took them, took them three days um, to, to get it back to me. So, yeah, I'm going to try and not use Google. Google's had a history of having terrible ability to get a hold of them. One, they're so big. And two, I think they try to keep their costs down by not really having a significant customer support system for people who aren't paying. Yeah. So if you're an enterprise or something like that, you probably have good support. But for everybody else, they're terrible to get a hold of and they do stuff like that. But I do want to mention, since we're talking about that, that, no, I, I did do a refresh on my Lightworks. I sent them an email to release my key and 10 minutes later it was released. And that's the difference between a company who is on top of their customer service and will help you immediately and a company who doesn't care. I found EditShare to go above and beyond. Like in addition to just being responsive to answering emails, if you have a problem, even if you don't have a paid support contract to walk you through stuff, if it's just email or just a couple of questions, they'll be happy to walk you through that um, yeah, I found their customer service to be absolutely fantastic. And of course, they don't penalize you from being on Linux, which a lot of companies won't do, right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So this is an exact, a really good example of why we like receiving emails from you because it actually goes off and we can talk about other topics that you talked about. And lots of stuff sort of spins off, spins off from the emails we, we receive. So please send us your email each week. Ask that burning question or simply give us some feedback send your email to comments at destinationlinux.org. Up first in the show this week for news in the distro news section is, um, I don't really know how to say this, but I'm guessing it's Nutix. Um, but the way they spell it or they do the capitalization, it could be anything. But uh, Nutix uh, has released their 10.6 version. And if you're not heard of it, Nutix is actually a distribution that is based on Linux from scratch. And it has their own custom package manager called Cards which is, I can't remember what it stands for, but it's like uh, create, add, remove, something, destroy. delete. Yeah, destroy, something like that. It's, it's like, anyway. But uh, Cards is a cool system because it's like they have a structure of uh, being able to use source-based installation of packages and also binary-based. So if you could treat it like a full distribution with uh, packages and binaries, or you could treat it like a source-based, like Slackware or Gentoo if you wanted. So uh, Nutix is really interesting because it's based on Linux from scratch, but we need to make sure that you know that if you are interested in trying it out, you need to, they, they specifically say it's for a certain level experienced user of Linux. If you are brand new to Linux, don't touch it really. But if you've been using it for a year or two or a couple or a little while, then, you know, and you want to try something that is at that level, feel free to do so uh, because it is an interesting uh, system. Um, so first, this latest release, they've added updates to their kernels. They have two options for the kernels. Both are LTS, uh, 4.14 and 4.19. And they also offer multiple uh, ISOs with different DEs and different, uh, whether you have an architecture of 64-bit or 32-bit. Now, there is something worth noting, is that if you were to use the 64-bit, you, you can't use the multilib. So certain packages that require multilib won't really work. So you won't be able to do like Steam, for example, because Steam requires 32-bit packages inside of a 64-bit machine. 
So they decided that if you want to use 32-bit, you'll have 32-bit packages. If you want to use 64, you'll have 64-bit packages. But other than that, it, it supports whatever, whichever architecture you want. Um, but they, they come with uh, KDE Plasma 5, uh, Mate, LXDE, LXQt, um, XFCE, and, and GNOME, of course, and also like a bunch of other different window managers you could choose, like JWM or uh, OpenBox or FluxBox or IceWM, etc. One of my, this is like completely not really related to specifically Nutix, but it's a, a DE that I love the idea of because of how ridiculous it is. It's called Rat Poison. And it's designed to never use a mouse whatsoever. You're not even allowed to use the mouse because there's no drivers for the mouse at all. Like they specifically make it not work so that you have to learn to use the keyboard only. And I love the name of it because it just, it kills the rat or kills the mouse. It's, it's a great name anyway, but it's a fun, ridiculous window manager if you want to try it out. This reminds me of the one you were talking about that if you type in the wrong command, it deletes your hard drive. Yeah, yeah, yeah Suicide Linux. Yeah. But quick question, didn't, didn't Rat Poison and LXDE get together to make LXQT? No, no, no. Uh, Razor Cute and LXDE. Ah, uh, Razor Cute. They combined. Oh. I was just going to say, next, it's got Linux from scratch, so I'm not going anywhere near this. Um, it's a shame because, you know, sometimes you're looking through the various programs and applications and bits and pieces on the web, and I think, oh, Nutix, that sounds good. And every time I have to go and look at it again and remind myself it's Linux from scratch, and go, nah, sorry, just not, not going to touch it. Well, I was going to ask some of the folks who are, um, you know, veterans here in Linux, why such a distro, what are the advantages to such a distro? Is this a, you know, if you do Linux from scratch, it's for a learning experience. Mm -hmm. That was my understanding. And so you could learn all the ins and outs of Linux and how things are compiled, et cetera, which is fantastic. I love the concept of Linux from scratch. But why have a distro based on Linux from scratch? What advantages would that be? As far as developers go, in this case, it's you don't have to start like actually from scratch for the user, but it's also incredibly flexible. Like doing this allows them to build off whatever they want without having to use whatever uh, other distro that they'd be using for, but at the same time not have to do everything. Well, not okay. It is from scratch because that's what it's called, Linux from scratch. But they they can still have at least a guide to create their distro from, rather than having like to build everything. Like completely independently so there's that that's one of the reasons i would say that's why they did it uh, but the flexibility is really cool because it allows them to do some really interesting things so they have a structure where your packages are kind of independent but not in a uh, container structure it's more of a root system so that when you if you wanted to install or compile software you have to do it inside of a root um, setup Otherwise, it won't actually have dependencies available because it, had, they have, it has independent pieces and various different sections so that you could have the system running without having access to compile or to do root privileges. Uh, but at the same time, you can elevate and separate. So if you install your, you can install Nutix, for example, you can replace uh, different pieces of Nutix without having to worry about it affecting other pieces because of that separation with the true structure. So the flexibility of it is really interesting, but at the same time kind of weird because they say that you could uh, install the installer section and then put it on the hard drive without formatting your hard drive and without replacing any partitions or anything because it works separately independently from the hardware itself. So it's an interesting thing. 
I don't think I would use it because of how much you'd have to like learn the in, the intricacies of it because it's specifically like it's so unique that it would require you to learn a lot. Um, but at the same time, it's kind of cool that it exists because of how much you could do with it if you wanted to. You know, right? I'll just I'll add on the people that I know that have used Linux from scratch. They've used them to create distros. So they've they've started out and they said, I have an idea for for a Linux distro. I think we should have a Linux distro that does this, that, or the other thing. Specifically, the guy that I knew was creating one for kiosks. And the way he got started was with Linux from scratch. He bought the book. He said, I need to learn how to create a Linux distro. I know the basics of Linux, but I don't know, you know, how to go about spinning a distro. And that's how he learned, and that's how he that's that was his testing ground, I guess. No, that's awesome as a learning experience. And that was kind of where I was getting at. It seems like, you know, the same thing when I was, you know, getting better and better at Arch, for instance, there's a lot of learning experience in there, but this is even more so because you're doing more things from the base up and then Linux from scratch being even more so of a learning experience out there that you can use. So uh, that's what I was trying to figure out is what's the advantage. It's not really a speed thing like a Gen 2 but more of a learning process. I mean, you right? can you can do well. Linux from scratch itself is absolutely the the, the reason you would do it. Because like, I thought you were asking why would you use something that's based on Linux from scratch, like like Nutix, for example. But as far as like Linux from scratch itself, then I would say that that it is the best way to learn the intricacies of the system. So like with Arch, you're going to learn a lot, but you're not going to learn everything. With Gentoo, right. you're going to learn even more, but not everything. Linux from scratch, you're going to learn. Almost everything, as far as like building everything, you wouldn't learn how to like create these different packages in the sense of like working on the kernel or anything. But you would learn uh, probably the most, uh, you know, to the core like bare bones approach to learning how to build a Linux system, and that's what Linux from scratch is. So it would give you a lot of information for that. But Nutix would be like this uh, an an easier way to benefit from those that from learning a little bit, but at the same time not having to start from scratch. Nice. Purism has announced Pure Boot. Now, Purism is the company behind the much anticipated Librem 5 phone, a privacy focused laptop company, has announced Pure Boot. Now, Pure Boot takes privacy and security to the next level by replacing the system's BIOS. Now, this is the idea of controlling the, the software that runs on the hardware from the time the machine is powered on until the time you get in to the operating system. They state that the boot process in the computer, hardware forms the foundation security for the rest of the system. So what they're doing is they're disabling the Intel management engine. They are using core boot free software BIOS replacement, a trusted TPM chip for the hardware key storage and decryption, using a heads tamper evident boot software that loads from core boot, uh, also, a Librem 5 USB security token and multi-factor authentication that unlocks the disk encryption uh, using the Librem key. Now, these processes combined to help make theft uh, with heavy encryption. It protects against BIOS malware and kernel rootkits. The Librem key detects BIOS tampers. And uh, finally, it's using free software so you can audit the code and see if there are any bugs or backdoors. Purism says that they're going to be shipping the pure, the pure boot in their new hardware and providing an upgrade process for existing customers. All of this is expected to be taking place next quarter. Now, a lot of people have met uh, this news with skepticism. And I think basically from the time that the Librem laptop has, was announced until the time that this uh, phone came out, I think people have been a bit skeptical 
of, of Todd and his team being able to actually achieve what they set out to do. But the truth of the matter is that I think time and time again that they have met or exceeded expectations. There was a lot, of, there, a lot of people that said this laptop, it will never even be able to get off the ground because they don't have the infrastructure. They don't have the scale. They won't be able to buy the parts. And slowly but surely, they have been able to prove people wrong time and time again. My question is, or my concern is, is there really a threat vector significant enough to offset the convenience of being able to just turn the machine on and letting it boot and to deal with the overhead of custom BIOS, custom boot, you know, all of those kinds of things. I'm not saying that there isn't an audience out there for these kinds of features. I'm not saying that it's not a good thing to strive for. I just question if where we are in the current state of Linux and where we are in the current state of competitors in the Linux hardware specific um, model, if this is where we want to be focusing on is, is BIOS replacements. It seems like in my estimation, secure boot was a solution to a problem that didn't exist. And is this the same? Do I not have to apply that same standard uh, just because it's open source? Well, there's well, a couple of things here that I think are interesting to, to your point there. We've got, to, as we talked about earlier, there's that convenience and security and privacy piece. If that convenience is there, your everyday normal user is not going to touch it. In this case, they have to use all of this stuff that a lot of people who aren't technical, when they're talking about how they're doing the boot process, how they're achieving it, they're listing out these five steps you read off and you're like, oh my gosh. But the reality is everything there is behind the scenes, except for your Librem 5 key that you plug in to your laptop and then you're good to go. So while it seems like a lot and a lot of work, you're really buying the laptop, you have a Librem 5 key, you hit the power button as long as it's plugged in, it's going to do that verification. It's going to check your BIOS to make sure it wasn't tampered with and give you a green or red light to tell you to go or no go. So I think they have struck a nice balance here with they've got all this technical geekdom behind the scenes, what they're replacing, what they're doing. But from a user standpoint, you're plugging in a device and going. It's really shouldn't be uh, that much of a headache for I folks. I guess let me phrase it this way. Can anybody out of the four of us or anybody in the audience point to a situation that they've experienced where them or somebody that they knew struggled with a machine that was, that had the bios tampered with. That's what I mean when I say, are we, are we, is this a solution in search of a problem? Well, is this a situation though of, we are future-proofing towards what we see as an issue or what's been rumored out in the mainstream media as an issue, which is Huawei hiding chips in there yep. that nobody has access to, you know, China putting information in Intel or other servers to Super capture micro? data that we wouldn't be able to see because it's not open. But you're right. I can't think of a single issue that's happened yet. I think this is more of trying to mitigate that from being a problem a very real issue that could happen that hasn't but they are well, they are doing the open source model to keep that from taking also, place. wouldn't you think that if this is going to work and is going to be as easy as they have have documented just these five steps that um the government of your country the secret service of your country anybody who has that top level of access should be using just this type of computer with just this level of, of security? Well, we don't really know what they're using, so they might, they might be using something custom that they do. Because, I mean, there's been, re like, there's been reports where uh, some countries would, like, actually catch 
shipments of different hardware and then modify it themselves or you know like the, as far as like the super micro thing that was just you know yeah, hearsay mm. essentially but like the, we don't really have an example ex uh, of like the t the tampering of a bios or anything but uh the there is so at least something to be worth talking about with the intel man management engine where mm -hmm. it is essentially it's like a separate chip on your motherboard that will um even if you do change certain things, it has its own custom proprietary firmware that it could do something malicious. And there's also a lot of people who don't like the idea of having that piece of firmware there because you can't do anything about it. And there's like, so in that sense, we that we do know that the Intel is doing stuff that is proprietary. When they they argue, they, they talk about how all all their stuff is open source and it's in the, the Linux kernel and everything, but that part is not. And that is a separate thing where they could, we have no idea what they're doing with it, but you know, we don't, that's something that specifically I don't, I'm not okay with having something on my computer that I have no idea that, what they're doing. It's, I think it's a bit of a mischaracterization to say we have no idea what they're doing with it. it I think what you mean to say is that they could be doing things that we're not aware of. And well, we have no idea what their intention is, I guess is what I'm really saying. Cause they could be doing things that we don't know because it's all proprietary and they, like they, right. they say what they what it's supposed to be, but it could be other things. Sure, exactly. Yeah. yeah okay. So I, it is. I, I admit it was phrased in a little bit weirder than I meant to be, but uh, I think that it's. Um, this is I just an don't idea. want people to get the idea that like Intel. It sounds more mysterious if, if people say, "Well, Intel put this chip on their board," and uh, their answer is, "Oh, we don't know. It's just yeah. there." <laughs> That's you know, a good it's, point. It's not like that. It's yeah. not that. It's just that you're right. They could hide something in a binary blob that. All of these security researchers that have tried to, you know, reverse engineer this stuff may have missed. That it is yeah. a possibility. Yeah, that's that's uh, what I meant. But it's, it's a good let just, me ask you this: No, if I gave you two computers side by side, one was a Purism laptop and one was a Dell, and essentially the hardware is the same, but one has an open source BIOS and one doesn't, wouldn't you pick the Purism? Yes, if that was a, if that was an accurate example. But here's here is the here is a more realistic example. I have two computers in front of me. One is a Dell, and it has a Wi-Fi card that has been tested and works flawlessly with Linux and doesn't have any issues. The trackpad has been custom re-engineered by Dell so that thumb detect works and two-finger uh, right-click works and multi-gestures work and all of that. Uh, standby and resume works. The battery life is better because it's talking directly to the motherboard, and Dell has done that, and they've integrated a firmware update system so that firmware updates for the computer come down with the operating system and then next to it on the other side i have a, another laptop that's made by an infinitely smaller manufacturer and that manufacturer isn't ha, doesn't have the ability to roll firmware updates into the package manager because their agreement with their odm says that they actually have to they can't offer those firmware updates directly to the customer they can just provide instructions on how to get it from the odm and the wi-fi card maybe works most of the time but they don't have the budget or the scale to keep up with all of these changes and, and so on and so forth. And when a customer does have an issue with it, they don't have the ability to say, well, we'll just overnight you a new computer. Will we fix yours because something broke? Uh, that, I guess that's what I'm getting at is we have so many like really big problems right now that are real issues for people that want to go into Linux. And those issues seem to get less attention when we concentrate on issues that I'm not so sure have a real impact. I, when I was at Dell, one of, the, one of the conversations that we were having was Dell had an iMac Pro killer. They had an all-in-one computer that totally decimated the iMac Pro. And the problem that they were having to get market penetration was 
they needed a decent video editor on top of Linux. And so I did what I could to try to get Dell and EditShare in cahoots with each other. But the truth of the matter is both of those organizations are very, very large and I'm very, very small. And so it was difficult for me to accomplish anything, if, 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 if anything at all. Um, and so when I look at stuff like that and I start to go, man, if we could get a solid video editor and have collaboration with a hardware manufacturer on Linux and fundamentally change the creative workflow of hundreds of thousands of independent content creators, I think that has a much bigger effect overall in desktop Linux than a secure bio system. That, I guess that's my point. It's not that well, it's can't not... Can't we have both, like a soft and hard taco uh, commercial? Can't we um, have both? Maybe if we had the money for both, but right now I don't know we're accomplishing either adequately. And so it concerns me that we're trying to make a soft shell taco before we've perfected even getting a hard shell taco. <laughs> so, uh, Noah, you just need to think outside the bun. <laughs> the puns are strong with you <laughs> by the way Zeb, i want to clarify something real quick before we move on that you said the five-step process the five steps he listed there is what purism has done behind the scenes for a user mm-hmm. it's a one-step process it's take your yeah. librum key plug it in hit power that's it everything else that, is taking place behind you, the scenes that, even that is optional right you can shut off the librum key Probably. I would imagine you could, but that is one of the key security detection right. devices to look for any tampers that have taken place, but I'm sure you probably could just not use that. Yeah. So if that's not enough security for you, you've got your Purism laptop, you've got your Librem phone, but now you need a secure way to share files. I have good news for you because Onion Share 2 has been released. This is an open source tool that lets you securely and anonymously share a file of any size, which is a big change on the Tor network. Onion Share generates an unguessable address that is shared to a recipient to open in the Tor browser. I actually tested it this week with Michael, but he was too busy playing with his new video card to actually, to actually pull bad. the file down. But no, it did seem to work uh, quite well. Uh, just sending a, a random file generates a random address that I can send to him where he can go get that file. No separate server or third-party file sharing service required. You're not going to have to do anything special to accomplish this. You host the file on your own computer. The only thing is you do need the Tor browser. So for Michael to go download that file, he at least has to have the Tor browser installed. So the recipient with the Tor browser will be able to download that, and you can stop sharing it at any point. So I can keep it up there for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, days, whatever. But when I decide that file comes down... It comes down, that address is gone, the file doesn't exist. It utilizes the V3 Onion services for improved security. New receive tab that generates an address for individuals to send you files, which is a pretty cool addition that they have. Um, Public mode is a new feature that allows you to set a two-word slug password for sharing files to groups. So if you want to send to a bunch of people, it will. you can have a basically a password generated of the 7,000 they have available. You choose one of those, it slaps it on the end of the uh, address, and then they can use that to access the file if you were to say send it to a group, like a Telegram group that you all want to have the same wallpaper or something else. Onion Share is now translated in 12 additional languages as well. So this was a really cool service that I guess had never just shown up on my radar. When I saw it, I played with it. It was very easy to understand within seconds sending a file to Michael, I think while we were talking and doing something else, mm-hmm. just to test it out. Well, I was setting really up my cool system. There. Yeah, while you're setting up. So, so be- before we move on, Noah, here's R- uh, Ryan, found this wonderful new protocol. He sends it to Michael, who's too busy, and we get left holding the daisies. 
Yeah, I was actually thinking about that, Zeb. I was like, man, what a what a community review that is. Those two guys just take off, and here we are left in the – we don't have any files to share. We're just stuck, what? I guess – Well, one was I, Olympic curling, and the other one had a mouse that had gotten half through. That's a good point. So I, I, I one, guess, had a, one had rat poison to deal with. That's fine. Zeb and I will go <laughs> set up our FTP server. We'll, uh, we'll exchange files the old-fashioned way. We don't need your onion share nonsense. Oh, I want the files, too. <laughs> <laughs> So can anybody actually see this being used? I mean, what, what, why would you worry about having to send it? It's a bit like um, the previous um, description of, has anybody ever sent a file to somebody? Oh, and someone else has nicked it, and they can now see the pi- 13 pictures yeah. of the cats. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. What I've happened? Had the, I've, had the, I've had that problem. Yeah. No, absolutely. I've, had, I've, I've absolutely had an issue. Um, we deal with all sorts of... Uh, I, I don't know how much detail I can go into, but we, we deal with all sorts of gathering information off of machines that are used in all sorts of ways. And the people that would like that information, either not to arrive at its intended recipient or would like to know what information is being delivered to the intended recipient so that they can respond accordingly. I've dealt with both of those issues multiple times. Uh, now, the truth of the matter is, it, for us, it was a simple process of, okay, so we're just going to encrypt files and send them, and that solved that problem for us. But if there was an easier way to do that, I absolutely think that there is an issue. And I'll tell you something else, too, and this applies to everybody. The NSA has data forms that they set up and just suck information off of the Internet. Everything that gets transferred, if it's not encrypted, it winds up in uh, on their on their data system, and then the other thing that they'll do is even if it is encrypted, they'll capture it, and then they'll wait for something like Heartbleed to try to decrypt the information that they have, and mm-hmm. and, and then they'll go back and look. So it, it actually affects anybody that wants to be that wants to send information private from the government because the government is actively trying to uh, capture information from people. So I think there's a there's a couple of attack vectors there that this mitigates and is a. It's also mm-hmm. a good way to because these files are stored on your own computer, so you just leave them where they are, and you can send the files that way through the thing. So you don't have to worry about you know because it, you, it's using your computer. Some people might worry about opening a connection to their computer, and it'd be problematic for that way. But this way uh, has the extra security on top of it, so it doesn't you don't require you to do anything extra other than to use the service and to use like a Tor browser. Which, to be clear, mm-hmm. is opening a connection to your computer. Right, I but mean, it's going through multiple encryption. Yeah, it is opening a connection, but it's opening a connection through an encryption approach with, through Tor. So it's there's right. more. It's not it's just not like a basic opening a your port. Yeah. Yes. Right. right. Yeah. Okay. Well, security certainly seems to be the flavor of the show this week because there is a new security tool available for Linux that aims to provide more visibility and control over user activity. The new tool is called CMD. I would have thought that would have been called Command, but hey, that's just my old DOS days coming back. So the tool allows for active monitoring and the control of commands run on the Linux-based systems. Now, according to um, CMD, the world's applications live in the cloud these days, meaning organizations rely heavily on Linux to deploy their workloads. There's just one problem. Security controls for Linux are either too clunky to implement or only provide narrow forms of protection, forcing organizations to purchase multiple tools to ensure they're covered. Now, I'm not a technical person at all, but I immediately have an issue with that whole statement because I thought the reason why 
Linux was on all the servers out there in the world is because you did have great control over it, that you did know what was going on and that it was easy to set up a monitor. Okay, you might have to have half a dozen different monitoring tools to do it, but that sort of, for me, goes against the whole understanding of why people adopted Linux. What am I getting wrong, guys? Well, in this case, the, the, the security aspect of Linux is different from what they're saying because they're using buzzwords and keywords that are kind of like uh, uh, ambiguous, but they're talking about having the ability to, to control the security uh, aspects of their own system so that they can, in, they can actually have like a, a dashboard that can, like they can like deploy certain things and certain um, monitoring structures so that when you do things over the protocol that they can see what's going on. Whereas with by default, Linux just like just has security features built into it, but it doesn't have control or monitoring features built into it yeah so, think about it this way uh administrators are very once they learn a tool that's what they want to use they don't like to switch tools and then they come over to linux say and are administering some cloud servers and all those tools are there but there's 12 of them that you have to go into to get the same features versus having one tool that they're used to in other environments to manage all those different aspects in one place for an administrator, that's a huge advantage to have something like that. And I think that, I don't, I'm not saying this company does that because I've never used it, but I think that's what they're trying to accomplish here. Mm -hmm. um, and something else that, um, I'm not saying that this isn't a good thing because I just don't, I'm not that technical enough, but something else that I found a little concerning for me as an end user point of view is additional real-time monitoring allows you to see every user execution in real time. Monitor all user executions, including scripts and outputs. Gather a comprehensive understanding of user activity without resorting to complex gateways or screen recorders. Aren't they just eavesdropping on what you're doing? Well, in this particular case, you would want to. It'd be like saying, aren't you just eavesdropping on your own server by going in there and checking who the last person logged into it was? I, I think in this particular case, because they're locking down a server, what is happening here is actually really interesting. There was I was trying to think one day randomly in one of my just random, you know, thoughts is what would be a great way to secure a system outside of what's done. And one of the things, and this was years ago, one of the things I had thought of is pattern recognition, right? When I go on my computer, I do the same thing concepts usually over and over and over again. So a computer can easily detect then that there's some abnormality because all of a sudden Ryan, who goes on his computer and opens Firefox first when he sits down and spends, you know, 10 minutes reading Reddit and then goes to Telegram and does this, all of a sudden just logged onto the computer at two o'clock in the morning from another country and is now trying to send a bunch of files uh, from yeah. his drive to this other country. This it, doesn't make know, sense. It, it could be even more subtle. Down. It could be even more subtle than that. You know, as you're talking about that, I'm going, yeah, man, you are absolutely onto something. There are certain directories I never go into. Right. If I log into a server, I'm either in Etsy or I stay inside of the home directory because I'm moving files or whatever. It's a rare day or far. Uh, those three are pretty much the directories I'm in. If you're in any other directory, chances are I'm not the one that's on that machine. Yep. Mm -hmm. and, and so they're utilizing this information as part of a you can actually set up then uh, triggers to say, whoa, Noah doesn't normally do this. Noah's access is getting revoked and it happens real time. And then Noah would have to call the administrator and say, hey, you know, my, my access has gone all of a sudden. And then you would look at that and say, okay, I guess you were doing something new today. But you could set up situations where you could mitigate that without having somebody just sitting there 
watching the server all day. I think it's a pretty cool idea. I don't know how well mm -hmm. it's executed, but it seems pretty neat. Yeah. So again, from a from a, a non-technical point of view, is this just a really sophisticated keylogger? Um, more so than that. But yeah, it has that's why I said really sophisticated. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, there's there's going to be problem there. They, we don't know if they have keylogging in there or not, but they might. Uh, it could be just that activity that you're doing in the system. So, like when you activate loading up a particular application, it would recognize that and put that into a log and send that to the server. Mm -hmm. So keeping track of like an enterprise system where let's say you have hundreds of different uh, people who are using in a company and you, you can deploy out uh, various different tools like this and you could be able, let's say for example, there's a, you know, 150 people who are opening a particular application that you didn't deploy onto their system. That would give you an example of like maybe there's some kind of an infection that's being spread around the network. Whereas, mm -hmm. like, so you could detect of all kinds of different things that are in that situation of maybe someone uses this application and then it's, you know, there's 500 people in your company and only one person using this application, but that application costs like $10,000 to purchase. Well, then you can mm -hmm. use that information to make decisions based on your purchasing things. So, like, there's all kinds of different yeah. approaches that a database, a server, or an enterprise company would want this kind of information to have. And I'm guessing as well, on a positive note, they could possibly use it to stop that disgruntled server admin before he walks out the door because he's just been fired from doing an RMF, whatever it is. And if you, if anybody issues this evil unit's command, stop it dead in its tracks. There could be. Yeah, be there's, also, there's also an example that I've actually heard of someone who was arrested because they were using their company's massive servers to uh, uh, um, mine Bitcoin. Happened several situations <laughs> yeah. like that. Yep. So they could be mm -hmm. like, well, all of a sudden our CPUs are just going crazy for no reason, like a uh, Bitcoin miner. <laughs> it's like, it could be. So here's my rub with this tool. So I thought it was really interesting. I love that some of random thoughts that I had, they seem to be deploying here. And I'm sure other folks have done it before. But the team here says one of their key things is, hey, we've contributed code to the past in Linux kernel and other projects, you know, talking about their credentials and stuff. Yet this package isn't open source. Yeah. So I kind of had a rub there. I thought, well, if you're used to contributing to the Linux kernel and contributing to other projects, I get you've created something really cool here, but should it be open source? That's my question. Well, the, if you look a bit earlier on in the article, it says CMD is financed for a 15 million pound round of fund, oh, sorry, $15 million of round of funding by GV Google Ventures, Expa, Amplify partners and other investors for a total of 21.6 million. So if those people are investing in their business, they're going to want to return on that money. Ergo, it can't be open source because somebody else might then come along, take that source code and create something. But this is the chaos of the bizarre model versus the cathedral model, right? We're, we're saying, hey, you're going to outcode. You're going to, you're going to have it out there first. You're going to be the best at it let others go in there and try to copy it, but you were first to it. Why not open source it? I mean, they could, I, they I, could argue that they were going to eventually open source it and just not do it until they get like, get their money back sort of thing. And then once it's no longer in, in debt, they could do it, but they haven't really said anything. Yeah, I, I respectfully disagree. I, I, well, I guess you're both saying different things. So I respectfully disagree with Zeb. I respectfully agree with, with Ryan. If you, the, if you're worried about, making a maximum return on your investment, that's the time to embrace the tens of thousands of free developers that are going to contribute to your project, not the time to try to go at it alone, right? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So my argument, my argument would be if you're really, if you're really worried about, if you're really worried about um, delivering a quality product at a great price, then utilize the advantages of open source and let it work for you. Because every time, if you look at what the de facto standards in 2019 are, more often than not, you're finding those tools to be open source. If you look, and we 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 talk about this, right? Anytime we look at, you know, if you look at video streaming software, what do we go to? OBS doesn't matter that Wirecast was was around for 15 years before OBS was ever a, a, a dirty thought in an open source guy's mind. It, it it overnight pretty much took over and has become the de facto standard. Parted Magic, nobody even remembers where Parted Magic got its name from. It came from an original. Uh, program called partition magic that was kind of the play on words but nobody's even heard of that anymore people just use part of magic when people go to clone stuff they use clonezilla i don't it used to be norton ghost but yep. nobody remembers norton ghost now everybody just goes oh yeah if you're going to clone a drive use clonezilla like it, it when open source takes off it takes off as as and becomes a standard and we see that in web engines we see that in servers we see that just about anywhere open source start, tries to compete so if you're going for security and you want to make a tool my argument to you is utilize open source because you're going to get there faster, more cost effectively, and with a higher with a higher quality product. Sing it, brother. I, I mean, love I, it. To be fair, I completely agree in every way, and, and I think open source is the absolute most the, the most useful thing. Go ahead and put created. the button there. The devil's advocate argument would be the same thing that Redis Redis Labs did, where they uh, closed source something because all their tools were being taken by certain services, where, yes, they are a de facto standard in some cases for some de deployments, but they're not making any money from it because all the money is being utilized from, say, uh, Amazon Web Services, where they take so, their, their software and then modify it to be their So my, my my answer to that is they are not bringing a force to the market that that demands a cost. And I'll give you a perfect example of this. Look at the difference between Canonical and Red Hat. Where are there more servers in use? Ubuntu, by far, probably by, far. by a factor of 10 to 1, yeah. right? But who makes more money? Red Hat, by a factor of 100 to 1. They make more money off of every one of their servers than Ubuntu. There's the vast majority, probably 95% of people who are using Ubuntu aren't paying for it. They're just downloading and using it for free. Yep. Whereas the vast majority of people that download CentOS, they're using it as a testing grounds so that they can roll out a rail solution and Red Hat can make billions and billions and billions of dollars. And, it's, and the reason for that isn't that Red Hat is a higher quality software than Ubuntu or an Ubuntu is a higher quality software than, than Red Hat. It's a simple fact of Red Hat offers something for the money. And so people look up and they go, yeah, I could use the software for free, but you know what? For 800 bucks a year, they're going to give me a freaking representative and I can just call a 1-800 number and then they're going to fix my server problem regardless of what it is. Oh, and I can take that to my boss and say that we have better support from Red Hat than we had from Windows because they'll literally fly a guy out to us and put him in our facility and fix our problem. Microsoft wouldn't even dream of that. That's the kind of stuff that Red Hat is doing. They're stacking that support infrastructure behind it. So yes, the product is free, but if you pay for it, you really get something for your money. That would be my suggestion if if Redis or anybody else is struggling with that, you're not stacking enough value behind the cost that you want to charge. You're yeah. People aren't just going to pay for software. They'll find the free one. Yeah. And there's so much opportunity here for them to charge for things like training, right? For an entire organization, you could charge for the training. You could charge for the support. Like you said, you could charge for specialty customization and features that a specific server uh, farm would want to, to have that aren't in the core code. There's just a lot of ways to make money here. And there's a lot of ways that they have taken a really good idea. Let's take all of these tools. Let's combine them into one. 
but I think they should open source it. So that's my call out to them. Yeah, yeah I, I agree completely. I was just I was just giving the devil's advocate just to continue the discussion because I think it's important to at least we put a button on it in that that situation because someone's going to ask it might as well put it in the show. Yep, somebody's going to challenge Linux. It may as well be Michael. Not challenge <laughs> Linux. Oh, sorry. Help, help build the foundation for the argument that, that right. That, uh, That's what we're calling it. Yes. Build the foundation. Yes. Build the foundation. Gotcha. Good. Buzzwords. Synergy. So up next in the show is a an interesting new browser called Beaker. Beaker is a decentralized read and write browser. So it's it's kind of like this um, approach that taking the Fediverse approach of having a decentralized server for Twitter or something. You can do a decentralized websites. So whoever goes to these websites will have like a seed server and then they could put those those files onto your computer and then you could help spread around that information to uh, other people on the on the this particular web. Well, not really, but they call it the the DAT system. And the the DAT system is described as like the best parts of Git, uh, BitTorrent and the internet combined together. And this is like an, it's 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 an interesting approach because they they have, they offer it as an app image, so it uses the universal package structure. Yeah. So it makes it simple to anybody to download it and use it, and offers you know standard browser features like going to different websites such as you know visiting destinationlinks.org first or or just uh, DuckDuckGo if you want to, you know that's kind of thing. Uh, but it also has um, serves up decentralized peer-to-peer protocol stuff through this DAT uh, structure. And it's an interesting approach because it's BitTorrent-style website visiting. Um, now, there's certain parts of it that is familiar, like it uses like a, a Chromium-based uh, browser, and it has this um, P2P or peer-to-peer for version of the page that you can access, or you can also access like the HTTPS approach. But it's kind of weird to me because I don't know if I would be okay with a website being stored in my home directory for other people to visit. Not necessarily that, you know, that I have a problem with doing this, like the BitTorrent structure or sharing data, but there's oftentimes where websites are, you know, absolutely web servers are the most attacked uh, servers to get malware onto, to somehow inject some kind of code because there's a lot of the time people are using software that they don't update or they're using a CMS that doesn't have security patches or all kinds of things that could create this, this issue. So I don't know if, if I'd be comfortable having that kind of relying on someone to maintain their website on this protocol and storing it on my computer. But you could utilize any other option. This is So this is my favorite project so far that I've seen. It comes anything close to, again, the ability to have the convenience of what you need to do with the ideal of having a decentralized web, which the very creator of the World Wide Web wants to see himself. And we've talked about that in prior episodes where he's come out saying, this is not what I dreamed of where Facebook, Google, and these giant companies own everything on the web. I dreamed of a decentralized platform for people to share and collaborate and get together across the world. And that's not what has happened. So he yeah, was looking it, for alternatives here. And he, and, did he want that solid server or something? Yeah, he's yeah, solid. Thing. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So yeah. this is the first time I've seen a push for a decentralized web, which I love the idea that actually is simple, makes sense, and you can get set up in seconds. In fact, I have Dosgeek Community out there on a DAT now that you can go check out. But you can host it not only in just your home folder; you can host it on Hashbase or any other 
you know, a service to hold these files. But the idea is that people will then seed it just like you do with torrents today. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're giving people when you torrent, and I know a lot of people torrent, you're giving people access to a file that's on your system, bits and pieces of it. It's the same concept. People aren't mm-hmm. talking about it being dangerous there when you're doing that. So it's the same concept there, but this is this allows you to very easily, the, the browser, you can go through YouTube, you can go to Dosky Community, you can go to Destination Linux, you can do everything you're normally doing. You just install this browser through an app and it's universal package. But you can also visit these decentralized websites in addition. So, and, and then they have a very simple to use tutorial system where they basically have done all your basic starting code for HTML. And then you can go in there and add things like the title and all that to create your first web page and then post it out there and other people start seeding it and, and basically having a peer-to-peer web. It's just the first time I've seen anything that was actually usable, meaning you're not going to have to go through and spend four and a half hours figuring out how to <laughs> set up the peer-to-peer mm-hmm. that I, I'm actually really excited about the idea. I, I think it's such a cool concept. I think the in- I think okay. it's interesting, but I, 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 the issue uh, is... I, I've seen a lot of servers. I've taken over some clients' uh, servers that had um, tons of malware infected on their system because the developer or the, the guy who was supposed to be the developer didn't do anything, and there was just a ton of just garbage on their servers. And if someone were to use that, if someone were to use that approach and be that, like, put those files onto other people's servers or to their computers, that could be problematic depending on what that happened. So the, I just want to say that there could be some negatives to it. I do think decentralized in many ways is very important. I just think that there's a potential where this could be a problem for um, the web itself doesn't really work in my opinion in this way because of not only you have the, the that issue of potentially getting infected in a way, but also the technical aspects because let's say you have, you know, a hundred people having different versions of your website. You make a change on your website. It has to be dispersed into every single uh, connect, uh, connected computer that to pr- provide the right version to those users. And then you have the same thing about this is kind of like a static system because it would have to be dis- deploying just static files. Otherwise, people would have to have web servers on their computers in order to uh, like output PHP or Ruby or something else. I just think practically speaking, it doesn't really work because the web is so complex on every website has different uh, massive different frameworks. And there's every technology has its own custom frameworks where CSS has like three different versions of frameworks sitting on top of it. It's just Mm. like, it's so much. I don't think they would work really for a decentralized web. Yeah. And for for me, from a, again, from a, from a simple user's point of view, how would you know whether you're, Beaker browser was looking at a DAT website or looking at YouTube's website. So it's very um, simple. It says at the beginning DAT versus HTTPS. And then when you go to a site, it will give you the option. Do you want to see the HTTPS option? If there's a DAT option, you can say yes, and it'll click over to the DAT file. And then you choose whether you want to seed it or favorite it, basically. Sure. So the probably without doubt, the most visited site in the world is going to be YouTube. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you ever see that becoming that? No, because well, Google want your information. So there's there's two thirds of the of the of the, of the web. But that's my You're point. Never, ever going to get access, and you can still utilize YouTube. You can still do those things if you need that service. But everything mm-hmm. else you can deliver in a decentralized tool. And this is like at the infant stages, guys. This yeah, is yeah, not yeah. Even, yeah. this isn't this is they 
if you look at their funding, they have $21,000 of funding they've raised so far for the year. And, you know, there are probably 10 or 15 sites that are DAT right now, mine being one of them. Um, So this is very much at its infancy. But what I'm getting at, what I'm trying to help people see is this is the first time I've seen a concept of decentralizing the web that actually is simple enough could work because of the fact, Zeb, Mm -hmm. that you can still go to YouTube, you can still go to Google, you can still do your normal browsing through this browser, but you can start building out that decentralized web behind the scenes as well. I do like the idea of it. And I think that it's one of the, it's probably, it is definitely the best one I've ever seen that, that accomplishes it without having such a huge barrier to entry. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like there's certain parts of like decentralized things that I don't know if it'll work. And just websites is one of the views that I think that might not because of how much all, all the intricacies of all the different complex frameworks and languages that need to be, need to be served. And the, the fact that you need like Apache or Nginx installed on your computer to do a proper PHP decentralized thing. I just can't wait for you to tell me 10 years from now how wrong you were. I, I want to be wrong. I, I, I want to be wrong on this case. So if that it does happen, I'll be happy to tell you. And happy to make a, an episode. Episode 1096 of Destination exactly. Linux. Look out for it, folks. Exactly. Linux is everywhere, and that includes robotics. Uh, Qualcomm and Thundercom have released a new robotics RB3 platform, and it runs on Linux. Now, this is a $449 kit. It includes... Um, Tracking cameras in OctaCore Snapdragon 845 processor. It uses Linux and ROS, the robot operating system software for developing of smart, power efficient, and cost effective robots. Now, Qualcomm has stated that the kit can be used to build autonomous systems that includes drones. The RB3 supports Qualcomm neural processing SDK for advanced on device AI, as well as Qualcomm Computing Vision Suite, the Qualcomm Hex. Hexagon DSP SDK and Amazon AWS RoboMaker. Ubuntu support is planned as, as I put in the near future. So if you're interested in building robots, this is a rather affordable option to get started. And additional add-ons will be available to enhance your robot to Skynet levels in the future. What do you guys think about this? Robots on Linux? That seems like that's kind of that kind of sh- that ship has kind of come and go. Like if we do robotics, obviously we're using Linux at this point, aren't we? Yeah, for the most part. I mean, there's there's different levels of like. I mean, every robot I've ever heard of has is using Linux in some way, but they're also all very rudimentary and they don't have like huge build out yeah. approaches. So this is an interesting approach because of they're doing the the big build out. So you could do like a pretty powerful robot um, like structure or drones. Yeah, or the drone. So, like, yeah. the idea is pretty cool. Think about uh, this. For the price of a brand-new launched PlayStation console, you can get a robot kit that has 4K tracking, cameras, and software behind it to be able to turn it even into a flying drone if you wanted to or build an autonomous robot out of it. I just think that's so cool. I mean, it's really – you're right. Robots, if it's Linux – uh, if it's a robot, it's going to be running Linux anyways. I think this is the cool thing about this is that kit for that price point in what you're getting. It sounds like you could do a lot of cool things with it. It'd be a really fun yeah. project. I mean, I just yeah. having a kit that's like nice to build your own robot, rather you can just start from scratch. Because like, there's also like a lot of different things you could build robot with like uh, like Raspberry Pi as your stuff, but it's not going to be very powerful, and you definitely can't make a drone from that. But I think the idea of having like an SDK that they provide 
a nice way to get started in building something like this. It's pretty cool because it makes it more accessible to people. I was going to say, for somebody like myself, like uh, if you asked me, would you be interested in using Linux to build robots? I'd be like, heck yeah, I'd be interested in using Linux to build robots. What do I look like? Crazy to you? But then if you were like, well, go to Amazon, boss, and pick me out some Linux robots, I don't even know where to start. Like, you but know, now well, you've got the one you're going to get me. Well, no, have that conversation that well, I'm going to make up so you buy one. So here's the thing. <laughs> Ryan, this, I know you're saying that in jest, but the truth is this could, how great would it be to have a Linux robot kit that we put together itself this year? I was thinking the same thing, man. If we could get this robot and I would pitch in towards this so we could do this as like a crowdfunding with us, but I would pitch in towards this and we could have a table. No one, Ryan split the cost. (laughs) Yeah, basically you're right. That that would be the crowdfunding. But we could, we could have a table set by your booth and people could come around and hack on that robot. They could help build it. They could help add software to it and we could see what we could have it doing by the end of self. How cool. I'm in. I'm in. Yep. I just look to see if I can buy it on Amazon. It doesn't appear that I can buy it on Amazon. Okay, you can actually purchase this thing directly from Qualcomm. So I've contacted sales and put my email address in. So we'll see what they say. Awesome. Interesting. Let's do it. One of the things we may want to go along with this robot is the new one terabyte micro SD cards. Yes, that is one terabyte. Imagine all the pixelated games. You remember when we had this war zone <laughs> where we were trying to say who could have the most retro pie games on their Raspberry Pi? <laughs> yeah. This is the winner is going to be the person that gets this one terabyte card here because nobody's going to be able to beat that. But the good news is Micron and SanDisk have both launched their UHS micro SDXC, that's secure digital expanded capacity for anybody wanting to know, memory card. Western Digital Sandus is claiming a performance of 160 megabytes per second read versus Micron's 100 megabytes per second. The card won't be cheap. It's going to be $449 for the Sandus version, and we don't have a price on the Micron, but being it's a little slower, I'm thinking it'll probably be a little cheaper. Probably there. the same price. Just well, well, there's a good split. Noah brings a robot. You bring the one terabyte card. <laughs> and they're both Michael with more space than me? Yeah. Unheard of. <laughs> Michael doesn't even have one terabyte as hard drive, much less as a I do. They're just not know. hooked up. It's totally different. This is this is pretty awesome, though. So I went and did some digging on the history just because I thought, my goodness, think about on a micro SD card, one terabyte. So in 1979, IBM released the 3370, which used seven 14-inch platters to store 571 megabytes. In 1980, they introduced the force first one gigabyte hard drive, which weighed 550 pounds. In 1988, Prairie Tech released the 220, which was the first 2.5-inch laptop for a laptop uh, for a notebook, which had two platters at 20 megabytes of storage. Now in 2019, of course, I know there's a big jump, but you you don't want to go through a whole history lesson, but we have a one terabyte micro SD card that could get lost in the lint of your pocket. That's amazing. I just think that's so awesome. So if you have a Raspberry Pi or one of these other projects that utilize a micro SD card, check out getting one of these. They'll probably drop in price considerably. This is obviously the first release. Right now, they're a little overpriced, but eventually this will become the standard. You'll go to the store, you'll pick up a one terabyte micro SD. And on the bright side, even if it doesn't drop very quickly, it does mean that because there's so much, the competition is at this level that you can get a fairly small for almost nothing, you know, in comparison. Yep, that's awesome. Okay, so a one terabyte um, SD card. That, beg, that begs the question, how many rabbits could you fit 
on a one terabyte SD card. Well, that's a lot of space, Deb. Yeah. Be- yep, because Space Rabbits in Space is coming to Linux. <laughs> Nothing encompasses gaming greatness like Rabbits, especially Rabbits in Space. Space Rabbits is coming to Linux. It's described as a 2D Parker skill-based platformer. Beautiful. Danger will rabbit. Danger. Right. It's not pixelated, so it's perfect for even the most particular gamers, a.k.a. me. I wonder who wrote this. The art style looks fun and the pace is quick, but it only requires one hand to play. That's because you're playing it with one hand and with the other hand you're going, really? <laughs> There are high leaderboards and competition against the highest pl- scoring players is done. Super Meat Boy style. Is that meant to be something? Is that another game? Super Meat Boy yeah. is a very popular game for a platformer yeah. that does okay. similar. So by shadow players of other players, best runs as they are competing to beat them. So I had a look at this um, in a little video that they gave you. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks awesome. I agree. You love it? I just did. I do I, good I, this week, Zeb. It's not. It's not it, really it, pixelated. It, it it's looks, got an interesting it looks style. tricky. No, no. It, yeah, it, it's it's a it's a it's a, an attractive looking game. Um, immediately uh-huh. it started up, I thought of now. What's that famous group of um, cartoons and stuff that we all used to listen to watch growing up? Bugs Bunny. No, 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 no. But he was part of a Looney oh, Animaniacs. Of- Looney Tunes. Looney Tunes. Looney Tunes. That's the one. That's what I immediately thought of was the Looney Tunes cartoon sets of characters. Um, so I watched this all through to the end, and and in woe beside me, not only are you playing with one rabbit, but you've got about eighty mates following you. And then it quickly tried to flick through who all the characters were. Really? Awesome. I mean, yeah. come on. Why does it have to be rabbits? Why can't Why it be Fred? Read that first sentence again for us, Seb. Nothing encompasses gaming greatness like rabbits. Exactly. Whoever wrote that is the next poet of, you know, the, the next greatest poet of our century. Oh, it was me. <laughs> I mean, amazing. Ryan Nothing, Hemingway for right there. Yeah, right. Nothing encompasses gaming greatness like rabbits. This looks like a really fun game in all seriousness. And it wasn't pixelated, Zeb. So I stuck it to wasn't. your rule. It was, yeah, yeah, no, it looked good. And yeah. for me as well, it looked... This is not something that you could buy and in two hours later you're finished because you're going to have to get the, the technique of working out which bit of the game is going to kill you, how to grab that rope to swing through and miss the gears that are going to grind you up to rabbit soup. So if you're hungry, if you're rubbish at it, it's going to be a great game to play because there's going to be a lot of messy rabbits on the screens <laughs> as they die. and You can put them in a nice pot and the only good thing about this is going to be a rabbit stew. But no, it did look <laughs> complex and it did look complicated and it looks like this could be something that could keep you interested. And I don't know if they're going to be having then other sort of extra levels coming out once you've completed the first 50. Yeah. Let's hope with a game like this, we don't want the developers to ever stop. It looks great. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 very similar to Super Meat Boy. Like, I, when you look at the the way the the gameplay is done, it's very it's Super Meat yeah. Boy is very similar. Where you're trying to avoid obstacles and you're doing it. It's super really fast paced, and and in some cases, like you're trying to avoid uh, lasers attacking you while you're like so you you can't go back because you the 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 map gets smaller and smaller because of like the things that are chasing. Like, it's a cool idea and i do like like the fast-paced style because it's, it's yep. like a a platformer puzzle game at the same time but it's cool i like the idea um 
It's, Let's hope it comes to the Switch so Noah can play it too. Absolutely. Space rabbits in space. It's just, it, it, who could not love to, that kind of game? Like, just. Only a cold hearted Brit. <laughs> Regardless of that, we've got other games that Michael can talk about. <laughs> Regardless of that. Well played, sir. And the other game we're going to talk about is, um, I, I'm going to guess it's pronounced Aeon of Sands. Aeon of Sands, The Trail. Uh, so if Rabbits in Space is just a little bit too silly for you, then you could try out Aeon of, Aeon of Sands, The Trail. The role, it's a role-playing game that's set in a post-apocalyptic desert world. And you, you, it uh, pays respect to the dungeon crawlers of, like, you know, the retro-style dungeon crawler games. And it has, like, a... like a, It's it's really heavy in the storytelling. Uh, and it has Linux support, which is... Ryan's on the show. Yeah. And uh, the, the world of Aeon of Sands may be like a lethal uh, but it's not humorless which is really cool because it's like um hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy meets uh fallout kind of game so uh the emphasis on exploration and it's the, the deadly world of aos is filled with secrets switches loot and eccentric characters to meet or fight and uh it's it's a it's an interesting thing if you like uh, the dungeon crawler games and it has a lot of really cool aspects to it because it's like a 2.5 D environment rather than like a, like it's a combination of being 3d uh, sort of, but it has a 2d style to it. And it's uh, it got 240 hand-drawn illustrations, which is one of the things I like is when they do like these, like instead of like doing like a, uh, on an engine where it's like rendered out textures where they do these like hand-drawn specifics, it adds extra to the style. And I really like that. So, uh, uh, Ryan, what do you think about this game? Because I'm, I'm pretty sure you're like a Dungeon Crawler fan. Yeah, I love these style of games. I mean, this is what I grew up on playing on the PC. And you've got like Legend of Grimrock. There was uh, Daggerfall. There was all these style of games yeah. that are just people just absolutely, when you talk about it, it's just a nostalgia instantly. So they're kind of playing, you know, to that crowd of people who love these style of games. They're they're simple to play. It's not about fast moving the mouse around as quick as you can or like a first person shooter. They're simple to play, but they're also very in depth in, you know, thinking and trying to make sure your character and party is ready to take on what's ahead and looking out for traps and puzzles and those type of things. But they're just a really fun game to play. I love these style. They have 240 hand-drawn illustrations. And I love seeing that in a CGI world, which I love CGI too, don't get me wrong, but it's cool to see hand-drawn illustrations and games again and just some of the options that they have here looks like it plays perfectly into what we expect from the style of game so definitely one i'll be checking out our software spotlight this week is walch walch is a application that will change your wallpaper based on the time of day it's a program that you can use to automatically change your wallpaper uh, at intervals, you set one unique use case as you can have a wallpaper that shows the sun up in the morning and then slowly change the wallpaper as the hours pass to the sun setting uh, and finally completely set at nighttime. It's a fun way to customize your machine or prank your friends with stupid wallpapers popping up every 15 minutes. Michael recommends Variety, which is inferior because you have to uncheck crap so it doesn't download random crap. Who wrote that exact in there? Quote. That's weird. That sounds like a Ryan thing right there. Oh. But Well, see, I found this Waltz program, and I'm like, I'm telling uh, Michael about it, and he's like, well, yeah, just use Variety. It does the exact same thing. 
but Variety yeah. downloads a bunch of crap constantly. No, by you're, you're describing you it have in a to way uncheck a bunch not. of stuff and do all these settings where Walsh just does what it's supposed to do. Okay. I pick my own wallpapers. I set the time I want it to switch. I don't need all this other stuff downloading from sites and putting stupid pictures of cookies on my desktop. <laughs> you have a little I'm, bit of a of a, an altered description. <laughs> untick all the crap you don't, don't want to untick. I don't want to untick it Walsh to you. No, but I tell you what's a lot easier. Look out the window. Oh, look, there's the sun of the night time. And oh, look, there's the moon. Well, well look, you can geeks do don't go outside. Outside's dangerous. <laughs> we don't want to look outside to know what time it is. We want to look at our wallpaper to know what time it is. Yeah, what if what if they're especially gamers? What if we like want to have like different settings of Borderlands, and you know you could just lay out that, and it, it could change. Yeah. You'd have a nice experience of the, the Borderlands landscape. I, it's exactly. there's possible options for that. Noah looks enthralled by this. In fact, I think I saw him downloading it as we were talking. I so funny story. I was looking to see if there was a PPA available because, and don't get mad at me, Michael. I have not had good luck with Variety. Yeah, I'm see? just saying Variety is an option, and I do think that Variety is is worth trying at least and because it has mm -hmm. a lot of cool features and i do like the fact that okay yeah. the, the unchecking thing that that ryan doesn't like it's because they allow you to use different websites and different places to get wallpapers so you can provide His an finger is insured for a million dollars i'm not going <laughs> to risk spraining it over so, unchecking a bunch of boxes and so variety by you default know? it automatically downloads uh, wallpaper so you can like try out or it'll give you different websites to see like it'll give you dire different directories to get wallpapers from and you can choose like if you have dual monitor you know, that, that kind of uh, like different sizes for your wallpapers like and it, you can do different intervals but you can also as ryan said uncheck the boxes and do local folders only so but risk injury and risk injury, yeah. I suppose. So, one, one thing, there's, there's a big plus that Walsh has got. It doesn't run in the terminal. But you why, would, why would that be a bad thing? The terminal is where we live. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm Yeah, I mean, we were born in the terminal, Zeb. I love terminal applications. Mm -hmm. So do I when I'm just basically installing software. So I think what, what you're trying to say is that you want to have more terminal games for the next week. Is that what you're saying? You've Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I and I want, a, I want a terminal wallpaper changer. There's your challenge, Ryan. <laughs> I want a terminal program that will change my background every 15 minutes. Didn't we do this challenge one time before, Michael, and it was like somebody found a Doom game in the terminal? Or <laughs> so we did some weird thing yeah, like, yeah, try Doom playing game. Doom in the terminal, and someone's like, well, actually, here you can. So <laughs> yeah, I'm you gave sure me about 15 games to play, and that's where we had the moon landing, and I actually got the best score when I closed my eyes. Yeah. <laughs> We can do it. We, we, we'll find you something like that. I, yeah. But I think that Walsh and Variety are definitely worth checking out if somebody wants to have, like, you know, change their wallpaper on for once in a while. I mean, personally, definitely. I uh, this is the, the first time I changed my wallpaper in the past three years is when I had to build a new system. <laughs> but, uh, you know, some people like it, and I think that it is nice to have that as an option. And I do also want to point out that Walsh and Variety have been around for a while, and the Variety is, a, is an interesting, has an interesting history to me because there was this... Uh, this app showdown development sprint that Ubuntu I made a contest essentially. And the, the, the contest was like the, the app showdown for like 2012 or something. Variety was, is one of those from the showdown and it has been around the entire time. But the reason it's interesting is that it didn't win anything and everything that did win doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> so uh, the only thing that is still surviving through that period is variety and I like just want to give them respect for that because they created a project. And Mad respect it. for them. It's yeah. a great little tool. Yeah. Yep. So 
Noah, uh, I tried to uh, socially hack AltaSpeed communi- uh, company. Oh, yeah? Did it work? No. Uh, oh. <laughs> your, your employees are very loyal. I tried to um, socially hack them by offering them money to change your wallpaper to a giant picture of Michael. And they refused. They went and told on me and told you that I was trying to do this, which was shocking that you have that much loyalty uh, in your center. <laughs> well, but I'm see, shocked that they don't want a wallpaper of me. I uh, I feel like the, the um, if I'm remembering right, that situation was like uh, you offered to pay them. And then they were like, uh, so then I found out and I was like, listen, nobody has to pay me to change my, my wallpaper to Michael. I would just do that. I might pay to change my wallpaper to Michael. So we can send you a, a whole folder of Walsh wallpapers of Michael's face and you'll use Walsh. Yeah, and I'll have different poses and different hairstyles and everything. Could I have, could I have, like, could I mix it up between Michael, Ryan, and Zeb? Absolutely. Like, can I? Okay. That would I would totally amazing. be up for that. I think we'd all especially use if that. They were, especially if it was like a, a really cute pose from each one of you and then it could like cycle through. For sure, yeah, we're known for that we'll on just, the internet. We'll yeah. just, we'll, everybody will just have we'll just have a photo shoot and we'll just we'll create a bunch of wallpapers from it. glamour shots. We could do glamour shots when we're at self. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Linux so, bar dude. They'll, they'll be saying, "Let's have the destination Linux calendar." <laughs> dude, that's already been requested. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So finally, for our tips and tricks of the week. You said you don't like the terminal stuff, Zeb, but LM sensor was my recommendation last week. Michael apparently doesn't like the terminal either because he said it's really difficult to understand those weird commands. That never happens. So he recommended instead using P-Sensor, which is a GUI-based application that essentially does the same thing, unlocking the LM sensors, et cetera, uh, to show temperature of your motherboard, CPU, GPU, hard disk drives, which is great if you are troubleshooting. Except in your case, Zeb, with the chewed through mouse, it would not have found that, unfortunately. So that's not going to help you. But if you're troubleshooting a CPU, GPU, motherboard issue, that would be something you could use it for. You know, that seems like that would be really great for somebody who dual boots into Windows and Linux so that, that they could keep a consistent, you know, graphical user interface from that confusing. That would be very interesting. Unfortunately, we don't know anybody who does that. So. <laughs> But the the good thing about P-Sensor as well is it will also um, tell you things about your particular um, hard disk or whatever it is you're monitoring that you didn't necessarily know about. Because when I had the multi-boot SSD um, container thing in there, I would look at uh, the two SAND disks and they would be sitting there about, I don't know, 27 to to 32 degrees C um, if I wasn't doing anything heavy. And yet, the two cheaper Kingston drives that I had only recorded it that they were constantly at 99C. Now, I can't believe that for a minute. So you just have to be wary that not all of the applications that you're going to be pointing at this to will P-sensor or LM sensors be able to read the, the outputs from them. Because you would have thought that the temperature from a, an SSD card is pretty, pretty, pretty easy to read. Yeah, this is all based on the monitoring chips that are on the hardware themselves. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. thing. So if you have, you know, and it could be a name brand or an off brand, it doesn't matter. But if you if they don't put a high quality monitoring chip on their hardware, you're not going to get results. You're going to get it. false reads. Yeah. You're going to get false reads from it. So this is definitely dependent on uh, having hardware that supports this pretty well. Um, Mm -hmm. But this is a really cool tool. A lot of people don't want to sit there and play in the terminal and things. And this is a cool tool to show you all of your CPU um, usage, remote server temperatures even, or fan speed. So if you have a server you're wanting to monitor to see if it's 
getting too hot or having issues, you can do that as well. So very, mm-hmm. very cool program there. And especially for a gamer, if you're sitting there thinking, I wonder if my you know, computer has enough fans to keep it cool. Put this up in the corner, fire up the game that uses it the most, and then just watch the temperature rise. And if you think it's get, getting a bit too high, then either alter the speeds of your fans or get another couple of fans for, 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 your, for your gaming machine. And it's very, very easy to run. It's not difficult. All right. So a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to Destination Linux, however you do it. Thank you so much. We love our patrons and our coffee supporters out there. So we just want to give a special shout out for those of you that support us. We do a live show for our patrons so you can come join us and you can be a part of the show at the beginning while we're waiting for Michael or at the end where we like to talk to all of you and have a good time. And you can join for just a dollar. That, my friends, is darn near free. That's right. We're now on coffee as a way to support the show. Coffee offers a nice monthly option that will allow you to get the same perks as being a Patreon. There will be a link in the show notes and on our website to join coffee. The perks include things like access to live shows, unedited versions, so you get the absolute worst show for the most money. <laughs> as well as our it's sincere just ex- It's just bonus extras. That's what, that's what it is. Yeah. It's like yeah, DVD bonus. extras. The worst of the show the for more money. <laughs> so, as usual, please get back to us and let us know what you think or ask those burning questions via numerous methods. Uh, the obvious one is an email to comments at destinationlinux.org. We have a Telegram group, a Discord group, Twitter, Mastodon, Diaspora, all sorts of stuff that Michael has put for you at destinationlinux.org forward slash contact so please keep those comments comments and questions we love to read them and here's of ways we might be able to improve the show yeah absolutely and if you want if the show actually is not done so because we, we have a lot more content that we create individually if you want to check it out you can go to ryan's content by going to uh, youtube.com slash dos geek and you definitely if you haven't checked out his radeon 7 video you need to do that uh, it was really interesting and really, really in-depth. Uh, he also compared it against the Vega 64, which I now have. And then Zeb has his own content where you get the uh, you go to youtube.com slash Boss. We'll have a link in the show notes for it. And where you can see him just plowing through some caravans on Euro Truck Simulator. And uh, you can find out my content with uh, tuxdigital.com where you can check out This Week in Linux podcast or some other content when I eventually do it. And uh, you can also see Noah's Noah's show, his Ask Noah show, by going to asknoahshow.com, where he takes uh, questions for business and Linux-related topics. Uh, and also remember to like that smash button and share the show on social media. Hey, everybody, have a great week. And remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Have a good week, everyone.